0: Hello everybody and welcome back to the Cook County Chapter Summary Podcast where we tackle the bread and butter of emergency medicine one chapter at a time. This episode we are covering non-invasive ventilation and pediatric and adult intubation. In anticipation of this podcast I just gave myself a little touch of succinylcholine, so I should have about 20 seconds to introduce our first talk coming from the measles capital of America. Berkeley, California, please welcome Quincy Moore who will be covering non-invasive ventilation Tip. Legend stands, he was born in a bed of lettuce. His wit is so sharp, he trims his beard with it. His patients call him handsome, but we call him the Q.
1: What's up everybody, this is Quincy Moore, PGY3 at Cook County, coming at you live from the South Loop. It's a lazy Sunday, I slept in, I did some laundry, I went to the dog park, and now I'm going to drop that fire in the form of a Cook County EM podcast. Non-invasive airways, let's go. So I'm going to skip over the more basic stuff, like nasal cannula and non-rebreathers. But don't forget about tools like nasal airways and positioning patients with a towel behind their head to get them in the sniffing position. Sometimes those basic things can help open up airways. Non-invasive ventilation, or NIV, is the meat of the talk. That's positive pressure ventilation through a mask that we use to try to stave off intubation in patients with respiratory failure. It's something we use on patients who are not obtunded and are protecting their airways. So if this is not the case, you're probably going to intubate that patient. NIV works by reducing work of breathing, recruiting obstructed airways, facilitating laminar airflow, and improving lung compliance. The most basic mode is PEEP, positive positive and expiratory pressure. If there's nothing in addition to this, it's CPAP or EPAP, all those are the same thing. This is one pressure setting for the entirety of the respiratory cycle, like holding up a hairdryer in your mouth. If you have two settings with a higher setting during inspiration and a lower setting during expiration, that's BiPAP. And you can control both of those settings on the machine. Now there are two types of respiratory failure, type 1 is oxygenation failure and type 2 is ventilation failure, or too much CO2. And depending on the type of respiratory failure your patient has, different settings should be used for your NIV. If there's oxygenation failure, type 1, like pulmonary edema or pneumonia, they need PEEP or CPAP, which recruits alveoli and improves VQ matching. CPAP, you can usually start around 5 and then titrate up to 15 if needed. If the patient has type 2 respiratory failure, ventilation problem like COPD or asthma, they need inspiratory pressure, not PEEP. This isn't because of the disease process itself, but because when these patients are getting bad where you're thinking about intubating them, they get tired and they aren't getting enough air. So if you give them inspiratory pressure, they don't have to use as much energy, and their ventilation should improve. So this will be BiPAP, or pressure support, if you're using a ventilator. They're the same thing, and you can start around 5 and work up to 15 of IPAP. A lot of folks use 10 IPAP and 5 EPAP as a default setting, but you can probably do expiratory pressure around 2 or 3 to overcome the mask, and you may not need more than that. If your patient is uncomfortable on the NIV, which definitely happens, you can try a little pain medication or sedation. Fentanyl might help if you think the mask is uncomfortable for them. Or if the problem is more anxiety, you can try a little Versed, one or two milligrams, or ketamine, half to one milligram per kilogram is what Scott Weingart uses. So all that sounds pretty sweet, but remember the absolute contraindications, decreased level of consciousness, excess secretions or vomiting risk, and any facial trauma or surgery that would preclude mask fitting. You can use things like gag reflex and pooling of secretions to assess for airway protection, but according to Tintinalli's, up to 37% of healthy individuals and 100% of all John Hardwicks have no gag reflex, so keep that in mind. Relative contraindications for NIV are hemodynamic instability because NIV can decrease your preload as well as severe hypoxia or hypercapnia and poor patient cooperation. Kind of self-explanatory stuff. So what about the evidence for NIV? In acute cardiopulmonary edema, a large randomized control trial showed no mortality benefit compared to standard oxygen therapy like non-rebreather. But there was improvement in dyspnea scores, heart rate, acidosis, and hypercapnia. And a more recent study showed reduction in need for intubation. So that's pretty good. In COPD, there was a Cochrane review looking at 14 studies that showed NIV reduced mortality by 50% intubation by 60% and treatment failure by 52%. So super effective there. In asthma, the studies are less convincing. And while it's still commonly used for these patients, a large RCT supporting its use is lacking. But remember, if you're using NIV for asthma patients, don't forget your NEBS, which you can put into the ventilator um, to treat the underlying disorder. So that is NIV in a nutshell. And then Tintinales talks about a couple other airway interventions in this chapter that are also important. The combi tube and the king airway basically have two cuffs, one which occludes the pharynx above and another that occludes below. So most of the time when you shove this in blindly, you'll be in the esophagus and there are ventilation apertures above that that allow you to ventilate the lungs while the esophagus is occluded by the lower balloon. If you happen to stick it in the trachea and you'll realize this when you start to ventilate, you can change it and ventilate directly through the end of the tube and into the lungs. Then you have the LMA or laryngeal mask airway, which you shove in blindly as well. And the distal end of the teardrop shaped bulb inflates and obstructs the larynx. And then the opening in the middle of the bulb is where the ventilation occurs. And this should go into the trachea. So don't forget about these tools when you are having a difficult time intubating a patient. All right, that's it for me pretty quick. Here are five highlights. Number one, for oxygenation, respiratory failure, like pneumonia or pulmonary edema, think about CPAP first. For ventilatory respiratory failure, think about BiPAP first to get the inspiratory support and relieve their fatigue. Number two, if a patient isn't tolerating the NIV, think about giving small amounts of fentanyl, Versed, or ketamine, but be careful not to overdo it and decrease respiratory drive. Number three, if you have a patient with a difficult airway and are struggling with intubation, try using a king, combi tube, or LMA to buy yourself some time. Number four, if a patient is obtunded or can't protect their airway for any other reason, don't waste your time with any of this non-invasive ventilation stuff. Just intubate that patient and log that. Number five, how come nobody came to the friends and family beach day? It was like the best freaking Cook County EM event ever, and only Colette and I, and of course our friends and family, were there to enjoy it. Everyone better have been deathly ill, or there's really just no excuse. You don't have friends? You don't have family? I don't believe that. Come out next time. That's it. Have a good day, everyone. Bye.
0: we Moore see more, as always, with an excellent talk. Just to clarify, I was not deathly ill, but I do have a skin condition. It's called paleness, and therefore, I'm allergic to the sun. Couple of quick points from Q's talk. Remember, CPAP is a single continuous setting. It's like sticking your head out of the window while driving down the freeway, which makes me assume dogs love CPAP. Think about CPAP for oxygenation failure. Think about BiPAP for ventilatory failure. Evidence for NIV. In cardiac pulmonary edema, evidence suggests no decrease in mortality, but NIV does decrease the need for intubation. In COPD, in COPD, the evidence is clear. NIV decreases mortality and intubation rate. There's been lots of talk about BiPAP and asthma. Asthma is generally thought of as an expiratory problem. Patients are unable to get air out and therefore breath stack. This increases dead space and thereby decreases the patient's ability to ventilate. However, Scott Weingart argues that in end-stage asthma, asthma becomes an inspiratory problem. The patient is so tired from breathing, so hard for so long that their respiratory muscles fatigue. At that point, the patient cannot generate a large enough tidal volume to ventilate. This means a couple of things worsening hypercapnia, impending hypoxemia, and an inability for nebulized drugs to reach alveoli and exert their action. BiPAP can help to supplement patient tidal volume, help to improve ventilation, and allow nebulized drugs to work. BiPAP setting in asthma should have a large difference between IPAP, so start around 15, and EPAP, start around three. The difference between these values will equal your effective delivered positive pressure. So a bigger difference equals a greater amount of ventilation support that you're offering your patient. Now, keep in mind, this is largely based off theoretical and observational data. No large randomized controlled trial has been done to look at this problem. For the boards, don't forget about the absolute contraindications to NIV. So these are decreased level of consciousness, excess secretions or vomiting risks, or patients with major facial trauma. Our next talk is the reason I always keep a pair of adult diapers in my work locker. Pediatric innovation. Please welcome Dr. Thomas Engel, who will be covering this most important topic. <laughs> Dr. Thomas Engel was born in the boroughs of Outer Chicago, went to med school in Detroit, and paid for it by being a drug mule across the Canadian border. He likes long walks on the beach, his favorite color is red, and he runs an underground cockfighting ring. Please welcome Dr. Engel.
2: Hey, it's Tommy again. What's your favorite food? This is my standard question to ask patients. Try it. You get some awesome answers and it really relaxes some tense situations. I'm going to give you a quick talk on the pediatric airway. Okay, so honestly, it is very possible you can go your entire residency without intubating a kid out. But I just spent a few hours looking into this topic and don't worry. You have all the necessary skills to handle these situations. In fact, pediatric intubations have a higher first-pass success than adult intubations. Let's walk through this topic using a case I just had at Lori. So EMS calls you for a 4-year-old near-drowning victim coming to you you, A&O times 3 but a hypoxic to 88% on 100% non-rebreather after 3 minutes of CPR by bystanders who is now 3 minutes out from your institution. Oh shit, now what? First, let's think anatomically. Kids older than 12 are basically adults, so they don't count. But kids less than 8 have a few differences that are more pronounced the younger you get. First, kids have a big ass occiput so their chin gets pushed way easier to their chest when they're lying flat. This messes up their airway. Also their tongues can be larger in proportion to their mouths and their jaws recede more. The larynx then is going to be more superior and anterior with a weaker hypoepiglottic ligament leading to a really floppy epiglottis. Once you think you have a view of the cords, it can be confusing because the esophageal opening due to redundant tissue can often form a V and look similar to the cords. Then, the distance from the cords to the carina is relatively short in some of these small kiddos, so it's really easy to mainstem them. And finally, the cricothyroid membrane is really small due to hyoid bone overlap, and this leads to the inability to cut the neck and need to perform needle crics in anybody less than 10. Next, in regards to their physiology, they have a baseline increase in their metabolic rate with fixed tidal volumes and low FRCs. If they need to increase their minute ventilation, they do so with increases in their rate, leading to less ability to pre-oxygenate and faster desaturations once they are tired or once you paralyze them. Next, the cricoid is the narrowest aspect of their airway. When they get inflammation due to infection or agitation, this is the first place to get edematous, leading to rapid decline in their respiratory status. Last. Kids do not tolerate desaturations as adults do. They'll often brady down really quickly and then go into asystolic arrest with even minor desaturation times. Now you, that you have thought through those key concepts, you probably now have one more minute left to set up your room before this kiddo arrives. You only need three basic things at this point. One, get your brazil tape out and laid out on the stretcher. Next, make sure you have a pediatric mask and bag valve mask that are set up to oxygen. And finally, connect the pediatric pads to your cardiac monitor. The rest of it is all pretty standard to the adult intubation. Once the kiddo is in the room, run through your standard assessment with two differences. Get the kid's shirt off really, really quick. They can hide severe respiratory distress underneath that shirt. Next, you're going to need to use the family and EMS more often for a complete history as the kids are often too young to really help you out at this point. In my case from above, the kid was maintaining his airway but now more hypoxic to 85% on 100% non-rebreather. He had severe intercostal retractions and tracheal tugging. The chest x-ray showed bilateral fluffy infiltrates that was consistent with pulmonary edema from the water consumption he had during the accident, and he appeared to be tiring. Now, while non-invasive ventilation is an option for kids, if you look and think that they are tiring, you need to act really quick because they're able to struggle for a long period of time, but once they hit that wall, they'll drop off the edge really, really quick. So now that we know we have to intubate this kid, we have five steps we're going to want to think about. First is going to be preoxygenation. In kids, you need to preoxygenate them with 100% non-rebreather for at least three minutes prior to attempting intubation. Unlike adults, in that standard eight minutes you have once you paralyze them, kids are only going to really have four minutes before they'll start to desat below 90. You can allow the kid to sit in mom's lap to keep them calm and prevent worsening airway edema from them crying. Try to hold off on putting that IV as long as possible to keep the kid calm. And if they are super small, you can have the mom hold the mask in front of their face acting as blow by oxygen as opposed to them wearing it because some of them don't like it. Further, if your kiddo is really in distress, bagging kids is a much better option than with adults. They actually tolerate it really, really well and their O2 stats will come up very quickly. The second thing is going to be positioning. The only difference with them is you're gonna really wanna remember the anatomy and have a towel roll ready to place underneath their shoulder blades, not under the head like we normally do with adults to align the tragus with the sternal notch to get the best view of your airway because they have that big occiput. Third is gonna be getting your equipment ready. This can be super stressful because there's so many size changes that go involved with kids. But if you get confused, just look at your Braslow tape. So first, set up your normal suction. Tube type is always an area of controversy. Historically, kids less than eight were almost always given uncuffed tubes for fear of causing airway edema because their airways are so small. But recent studies show that it probably doesn't matter if you watch the cuff pressure once you intubate them. So honestly, I'm gonna just do like what I do with adults to get something out of my mind, and I'm just gonna give them a cuff tube. The tube size can be estimated by looking at the little finger of the child. You can use the formula 16 plus age divided by four to give you a tube size, or if you're in a rush, just grab a 3.0 tube for an infant or a 5.0 tube for a child. 3.0 infant, 5.0 child. Next is going to be blade type. Historically, it was taught to use a straight blade to pick up that floppy epiglottis, but some recent studies are showing that providers are most successful using the blade they're most comfortable with, and most of that that's going to be a curved MAC blade. So just use whatever you feel most comfortable with. Then it's the blade size. The book has this totally confusing diagram about how to figure out what size to use for these kids. Here's how I remember it. A Mac 3 is for a normal adult. A Mac 2 is for a smaller child. A Mac 1 is going to be for your infant. Then, you've got to remember to have all of your airway adjuncts, the same as adults. They're just smaller sizes. And once again, if you get confused, just look at your Braslow tape. Fourth thing's gonna be drug interventions. Your induction and paralysis medication are the same as for adults. There's just a few caveats. Kids have more extracellular fluid, so the drug will act quicker and work for a shorter period of time with a slight increase in the dosing. I add about 10 or 20% to the migs per kg that I do with adult dosing to my peds dosing. Oh, and remember all that stuff about pre-treatment for kids? Well, yeah, that's a bunch of bullshit. Yes, they are more likely to vagal down when you attempt an intubation, but utilizing atropine does not improve their outcome, defaciculating doses prior to induction are not necessary, and lidocaine for increased ICP makes no difference in these kids. So if you really want to be prepared, drop a little bit of atropine in case your kid braided down and his heart rate does not improve with bagging. Finally. You gotta remember about post-intubation before you start. You wanna call for a ventilator and start thinking about what sedation medication you're gonna wanna use for these kids. While we're here, let's go on a quick sidebar. You need to be ready to perform a needle crike on anybody less than 10 years old. So, because I have no idea where the needle crike kit is, here's a way that you can make a needle crike setup with just normal emergency medicine materials. Get a 14 gauge needle, attach it to a five cc syringe with a little bit of saline in it. Find your landmarks and enter the cricothyroid membrane at a 30 degree angle, aiming down towards the feet. You'll feel a pop, aspirate a little bit of air into the saline field syringe, remove the needle, then hub the catheter. You want to then connect a 3cc syringe with the plunger removed to the hubbed catheter, then take the bag valve mask adapter from a 7.5 ET tube. This is a little plastic piece on top if you don't know what I'm talking about, and connect it to that 3cc syringe. Then take your oxygen tubing that you normally connect to a bag valve mask and connect it to that bag valve mask adapter. Make sure the oxygen tubing is connected to the wall port and cranking it up to 15 liters. Give the child one second of oxygen, then crimp the tubing for three seconds allowing for passive exhalation. You can repeat this now for up to 30 minutes while you call for a surgeon because this is only a very temporary airway. With the kid in my story, he was 20 kgs, so he chose 04 milligrams of Atomidate and one2 milligrams of Rock. After he got pre-oxygenated by sitting in his mom's arms for 5 minutes and us singing to him to keep him calm, the fellow was able to easily visualize the cords and pass a 5-0 cuff tube utilizing a 2-0 MAC blade, ensuring to stop at 15 centimeters or 3 times the tube size, to ensure that he did not mainstem intubate the kid. At this point, you cannot stop and think that you've done a great job and everything's all over. You need to now confirm tube placement using using bilateral breath sounds, entitled CO2, and a chest x-ray. Then you're going to want to place an OG or NG tube as kids often have a tendency to get gastric distension really easily that can put them into worsening respiratory distress. And because kids often have a floppy neck, consider securing both their head and neck to the stretcher while you're taping in that ET tube so they don't kind of flop around. And then finally, make sure that cuff pressure isn't too high in the tube, because we don't wanna cause that dreaded airway trauma that would happen down the line. So now, while you're calling your PICU friends or figuring out some crazy way to get your kid transferred to a PICU-capable hospital, you got two things to remember, because your friendly RT is yelling at you. What kind of vent settings are you gonna set this kid on? Are you just gonna bag him forever? Well, don't overthink it. Here's your cutoff. If the kid's less than 10 kgs, you want pressure control, a rate of 25, with a peak inspiratory pressure of 15, a PEEP of 5, and 100% FiO2. If they're greater than 10 kgs, that's more like a 2 year old, 2 and year old, you can go with your standard AC volume control with a rate of 20, 10 mLs per kg for your volume, 100% FiO2, and a PEEP of 5. In 30 minutes, get a gas and adjust your vent settings as you do with adults. The other thing you're gonna wanna think about is sedation medication. This is really becoming a big deal in the adult world and honestly isn't really even in the radar in the pediatric emergency medicine field yet. But from expert consultation, here's a bare minimum of what you need to know. Like adults, take care of the pain first. Give them a bolus of fentanyl, one microgram per kilogram. Then based on their blood pressure, choose a sedative. If the blood pressure is good, you can give them a half a milligram per kilogram bolus of propofol or a half a milligram bolus of Versed. At this point, call your friendly pharmacist or look up the drip rate for pediatrics. One of my favorite pediatric apps, thanks Zach Ramsey, is Pedistat, P-E-D-I, Stat. It's about five bucks and it'll save your life. So if you're lucky to be like me and be at a pediatric hospital, our kid was sent up to the PICU after us only giving him one dose of fentanyl. We didn't even have to put him on the vent or choose a sedative because the PICU took care of it. All right, that's all I really got for you today. In summary, I want you to remember a couple of things kids have a little bit of different anatomy. Make sure you put a towel roll under their shoulders to align their airway. Remember that their larynx is going to be really anterior, and really superior. Keep them calm as best as possible. Utilize the Braslow tape for all of your measurements prior to intubation. Understand how to perform a needle crike utilizing things that are just located in our department. And finally, once you've intubated them, Do the same stuff that we do with all of our adult intubations. Confirm tube placement, put them on a pain medication as well as a sedative, place them on the ventilator. You can always bag the kid while you spend time looking up the correct ventilator settings. And then call your PICU or someone who can get you to a PICU. Thanks for your time. Hope you're all doing well. Later.
0: Excellent talk from Tommy Engel. Remember, kids have a bigger occiput, a smaller jaw, a relatively bigger tongue, and their larynx is more superior and anterior than adults. Also, kids have a big floppy epiglottis. Given their shorter trachea, kids are much easier to mainstem. Tube placement should be around three times the tube size. So if you have a tube of five, you're gonna place that tube at 15. Kids have a small cricothyroid membrane and therefore we need to needle crike rather than surgically crike kids who are less than 10 years old. When you're trying to figure what size tube a kid needs, look at Braslow's, an app, or look at the child's fifth digit. The tube should be around that diameter. You can also use the equation 16 plus age divided by four. Or you can remember that for an infant, you're usually gonna use a 3 and for a child, you're gonna use a 5 When choosing what type of blade you're gonna use, you can remember that a MAC-1 is usually for an infant, a MAC-2 is for a child, and a MAC-3 is a normal adult or teenager. Always err on the side of a larger laryngoscope blade. For mechanical ventilation in kids, settings are determined by patient weight. For patients less than 10 kilograms, use pressure control, a rate of 25, and a peak inspiratory pressure of 15 p 2 be FiO2 of 100. For kids greater than 10 kilograms, treat them like an adult. AC volume control, a rate of 20, a volume of 10 milliliters per kilogram, a PEEP of five, and an FiO2 of 100. For post-intubation care, remember, treat pain first. Bullus fentanyl at one microgram per kilogram. And for sedation, you can use propofol or Versed. Use PDStat for your doses. Also, I'd recommend whether you're using PDStat or another app or the Braslo Tape, go look at it. Get familiar with the app. You don't want the first time you're looking at this thing to be when a kid is crashing in front of you. Finally, Tommy also reminded us to check the cuff pressure in kids. So how do we do that? Well, you go grab a manometer, you connect that to the cuff port, that's the port that you blew up the cuff with, with the syringe, and then you check the cuff pressure. The cuff pressure should be about 18 to 24 centimeters H2O. All right, guys and girls, we only have one more talk. And if you're not sick of my voice already, You will be. This next one's a bit of a long one, but it's an incredibly important topic. Intubating the adult. With the mind of a Neanderthal, the athletic ability of Helen Keller, and a morphinoid body habitus, please welcome John Hardwick. Alright, let's go. Let's talk about intubating the adult. First, let's talk about why and when we intubate in the ED. In short, we intubate to ensure ventilation, oxygenation, and to prevent major aspiration events. Does this mean that every patient who presents hypoxic or hypercapnic or not protecting their airway buys themselves an e tube? Not necessarily. The esteemed Dr. Shabowski teaches us to approach these patients using two simple questions. Number one, Is the respiratory process affecting this patient rapidly reversible? Is this patient just hypoglycemic? Has the patient OD'd on opioids? Does the patient have bronchospasm secondary to asthma, COPD, or an allergic reaction? Does the patient have flash pulmonary edema? Does the patient have a pneumothorax? If the answer is yes to any of these questions, treat the patient and reassess. The next question you're going to ask yourself is, is this patient going to decompensate before I can reverse this process. Therefore, a patient who is hypoxic secondary to a massive lobar pneumonia will likely need intubation. You cannot rapidly reverse that process. Or consider a patient with angioedema. If your initial treatment is ineffective and the patient is at risk of losing their airway, that patient needs emergent intubation. So, to reiterate, Whenever you walk into a patient's room, ask yourself, can I rapidly reverse whatever pathology is affecting this patient's ability to oxygenate, ventilate, or protect their airway? And number two, is this patient going to decompensate before my treatment can reverse the process? If the answer to either one of these questions is no, proceed with rapid sequence intubation. Rapid sequence intubation is our primary method of choice for intubation in the ED. RSI is a simultaneous administration of both the induction agent and the paralytic. Now we get super excited about RSI as ER residents. We're like Dr. Hoffman before the opening day of any superhero movie ever. We're amped up and we are ready to go. But before we go pushing paralytics, we need to first take a very careful inventory. Every airway can become a disaster but if we're well prepared we can likely save our patients and avoid having to change our underpants obviously get an e2 tube and a laryngoscope titanelli recommends an 8 to 8.5 cuff tube for men and a 7.5 to 8.0 tube for women put a stylet in that bad boy and check to ensure the cuff inflates properly For the blade, a Mac 3 or 4 should be fine for most adults. And remember to err on the side of grabbing a longer blade rather than a shorter one. Get backups ready. One ED attending I worked with places a bougie and an LMA on the belly of every patient they intubate. Therefore, they always have their airway backups nearby if needed. I also have started the habit of placing an oral airway in my pocket so it's close at hand. If you have a video laryngoscopy, Bring that to the bedside as well. You can never have too many airway backups. Make sure your suction is working, respiratory therapy has been paged, and you've examined the patient to determine whether you think this will be a difficult intubation. To do that, first check how wide the patient can open their mouth. You should be able to fit about two to three finger breaths in their mouth. While looking in their mouth, evaluate the Mallampati score. This score essentially evaluates how much of your view of the oral cavity is limited by the tongue. One is a great view and four is a terrible view. I can never keep it straight, whether one is good or four is bad, so I just remember this. A potty one means you'll likely get the intubation on one try. Also, don't forget to check for dentures and remove them if they're there. A small jaw can complicate things as well, so you should check that. The distance between the hyoid bone and the mentum should be about four finger breadths. Obesity can be a huge enemy here. Often these patients have fed their tongues extremely well and that thing is the size of a filet mignon. Obese patients also have huge chests and this distorts anatomy, creating poor alignment of the oropharynx and the larynx. To correct this, you can ramp a patient. Ramping is very simple. Simply create a triangular ramp where the apex of the triangle is under the head and the base is below the shoulders. Finally, you're going to increase your first pass success if you place the patient in the sniffing position. This is slight flexion of the proximal cervical spine and extension of the distal cervical spine or atlanto occipital joint. While you're positioning your patient or checking the inventory, you should be concurrently pre-oxygenating the patient. This is generally done with nasal cannula, non-rebreathers, bag valve masks or non-invasive ventilation such as BiPAP or CPAP. In patients who do not tolerate pre-oxygenation secondary to agitation, many ER docs now advocate for delayed sequence intubation or DSI. Think of DSI as procedural sedation where pre-oxygenation is the procedure. Ketamine is your agent of choice here and is dosed at one to two milligram per kilogram. Consider dexmedetomidine as an alternative ketamine in patients who have a history of severe CAD. In delayed sugan's intubation, after giving either ketamine or dexmedetomidine, place the patient on a non-rebreather, CPAP, or BVM with a PEEP valve and continue this for about 3 minutes to allow for a nitrogen washout. Then give the paralytic and proceed with the intubation. You should know... Most data for DSI is anecdotal, but one study of 64 patients showed that DSI led to significantly improved oxygen saturation prior to intubation when compared to standard RSI. Definitely check out Dr. Weingart's talk on DSI at mcrit.org for a more thorough and eloquent discussion of this novel approach. Moving on. Now that you've got your patient ready for the intubation, you're almost ready to give the induction and paralytic agents. But first we should consider adjunctive pre-treatment therapies. Now, there's not much evidence for any of these pre-treatments, but many ER doctors and specialists still advocate for their use, and they might end up on your board exam. So let's review them. Lidocaine can be used as a pre-treatment for patients with ICP and in patients with severe bronchospasm. The dose is 1.5 milligrams per kilogram or about 100 milligrams in your average adult fentanyl can be considered as a pre-treatment in patients with elevated icp patients with mi and patients with aortic dissection the dose is about three micrograms per kilogram or about 200 micrograms finally atropine can be used in children under five with bradycardia or children under 10 who are receiving sectional choline and also have concurrent bradycardia. The dose is 0.02 milligrams per kilogram. Now let's talk about induction agents. There are many induction agents and I'm not going to name them all. Tintinolase focuses on etomidate, propofol, and ketamine. Etomidate is a hypnotic. Typical dose is 0.3 milligrams per kilogram or about 20 to 30 in your average adult. It works quickly usually within about one minute and has a minimal effect on blood pressure. Atomidate rarely can cause severe myoclonus and if it does, this resolves with the neuromuscular blockade. Also, atomidate has been proven to suppress adrenal activity. However, this has not been shown to lead to any clinical significant outcomes. For this reason, however, atomidate is not used as a prolonged infusion. Propofol. Propofol is a rapidly acting drug and has a short duration of action. It's quick on, quick off. Its typical dose is about two milligrams per kilogram in younger patients and about one milligram per kilogram in older patients. It has deleterious effects on blood pressure via cardiac suppression and vasodilation. Therefore, propofol is not recommended in patients who are hypotensive or septic. If Forced to use propofol in the cardiovascularly unstable, it is recommended that you use about a tenth of the dose, so about 0.2 milligrams per kilogram. Finally, let's talk about Mr. Popular, ketamine. Ketamine is an NDMA receptor antagonist and works as a dissociative agent. It also has some analgesic properties. Ketamine's dose is about one milligram to two milligrams per kilogram or anywhere from about 100 milligrams to 200 milligrams in your standard patient. Ketamine can cause tachycardia and hypertension, therefore it is currently not recommended for patients with severe CAD. Though recent data suggests ketamine's effect on increased intracranial pressure is negligible, most providers still avoid it in patients with ICP. Okay, now you've given your induction, now we have to paralyze. I'm only going to talk about two of our most used agents here: Sux and Rock. Succinylcholine is a depolarizing paralytic. It works rapidly and paralysis should be achieved within one minute. Effects linger for about 8 to 12 minutes, at which point respirations will resume. Dose is 1 milligram per kilogram or 70 to hundred in your average patient. Though SUX is by far the most popular paralytic amongst providers, recently there has been a slow departure from its widespread use in the ED. This is because SUX carries multiple contraindications. Patients with burns greater than 5 days, denervation injuries greater than 5 days, crush injuries greater than 5 days, or severe infections greater than 5 days should not receive SUX. Patients with increased ICP, patients with bradycardia, patients with myelopathies should not receive SUX. The list goes on. So rather than memorizing this myriad of both esoteric and common disorders, some providers have decided to avoid SUX entirely. Furthermore, some argue that the peri-intubation caused by SUX increases metabolic demand and thereby worsens whatever pathologic problems your patient might have. Proponents of succinylcholine argue that its short-acting paralysis allows for better patient safety. If the provider is unable to intubate, they can simply bag the patient for 10 minutes until the patient can then breathe on their own. The counterpoint to this argument is that our patients in the ED need that tube regardless. This is not an elective procedure. Rather, our patient was sick enough to warrant an intubation, and this has likely not changed in the 10 minutes that you've been bagging that patient. Ultimately, you've decided that that patient needs to be intubated, and really, your choice of paralytic isn't going to change that. For this reason, rocuronium, a non-depolarizing, longer-acting paralytic with less contraindications has grown in popularity. Its onset to action is one to three minutes and can last anywhere from 30 to 45 minutes. Its dose is 0.6 milligrams per kilogram to 1.2 milligrams per kilogram. Now that our patient is paralyzed, we can go ahead and intubate the patient. Personally, I hate cricoid pressure, and the data has shown it doesn't stop aspiration and only harms visualization. But if you're a fan, go ahead. If you can see the glottis but can't seem to visualize the cords, ask someone to perform the BERT maneuver. This is an acronym for backward, upward, rightward pressure, which is directed on the thyroid cartilage. So push down into the thyroid cartilage, then maneuver it right, and then towards the patient's jaw. This should help in visualization. Once you see the cords, if you're unable to pass the tube, try rotating the tube about 90 degrees and then attempt to pass again. If you're still unable to pass the tube through the cords, you might need to change the terminal angle of your stylet. This should not be more than 35 degrees. If you are still unable to pass, you might have grabbed too large of a tube or your stylet is not fully loaded. If you continue to be unable to pass, pull out and rebag the patient until their O2 sats improve. If you are unable to bag the patient, place an oral airway and re bagging. If bagging remains unsuccessful, place an oropharyngeal airway, a King, LMA, or combi tube to assist in ventilation. If all these methods fail, Consider a surgical airway. If you have been successful in passing the tube through the cords, ensure good placement. Check for bilateral breath sounds, equal chest rise, condensation in the tube, and check for color change on the qualitative CO2 detector. Then get a chest x-ray and ensure the tube is 2-4 to centimeters above the carina. If on your initial exam you determine that oral intubation will be exceedingly difficult or impossible secondary to morbid obesity, trauma, facial edema, or other anatomical abnormalities, consider your adjuncts. Nasal intubation with or without nasopharyngoscopy can be considered. In blind nasotracheal intubation, anesthetize the patient's nasal passages and the oropharynx with hurricane spray, then apply nasal afferent spray. Have the patient sit forward with the neck extended. Advance a 5-6-OET to tube through one nair directed at the occiput. Once you feel you have passed into the oropharynx, rotate the tube around 15 to 30 degrees. Upon patient inspiration, quickly advance the tube. Tracheal intubation should initiate a cough and the tube should fill with condensed air. If the patient remains able to talk to you or you hear any vocal sounds, then the intubation has failed. The optimal tube depth for nasotracheal intubation is 26 to 28 centimeters. After ensuring correct tube placement, give the patient a dose of either morphine and fentanyl for pain control and add a sedative if needed. Get the patient on the vent and up to the ICU. Don't forget to drop an OG or NG, put the head of the bed at 30 degrees and place a Foley. All right, I know that was a long one, but thanks so much for listening. All right, it is another podcast in the books. Stick a tube in me, I am done. Big thanks to Quincy Moore and Tommy Angle for their insightful podcast. If you too want to make a podcast, send me an email. My email is hardwickjohn2013 at gmail.com. That's hardwick, H-A-R-D-W-I-C-K. As always, this podcast does not reflect the views of John Stroger Hospital, Cook County Human Health Services, or the Stroger Emergency Medicine Residency. Until next time, we'll see ya.